Dr. John Carlos, Olympian, bronze medal winner, honored American activist. Thank you for joining us today. I'm honored to be here. I'm honored to be healthy, honored to be alive, and honored to share. Yeah, I mean, it is a, a distinct honor for me. My father's civil rights activist, and so he's taught me and, you know, explained to me about your work and people like you and things like that. So to sit here across from you is just like an incredible honor to be here. So, Thank you. I'm your brother. Thank you so much. So we want to in- reintroduce everyone to this sort of iconic moment that you were a part of and initiated at the Olympics. Uh, I think most people are familiar with the picture, yourself and Tommy Smith on the medal stand, heads bowed, fist raves. But take us back to October 16, 1968, Mexico City. What's happening? Well, we had pageantry. Uh, mm. We had all the different cultures there, all the various costumes. Prior to the games, when it cooked their own country meals, their, their homeland meals, and so it was like a big fellowship. But October 16th, when we went to the stadium that day, I, I can remember to myself that the stadium was alive, mm-hmm. like it was a living organism. It, it almost like it was a triangle mm-hmm. of energy, high energy, because there was the energy of the athlete on the field. There was the energy of the people in the stands, the spectators. It all came together to the point where we fed off of one another. The stadium just vibrated with the energy of the fans and the energy of the athletes. We always felt like we wanted to give them a good show for the money. And we felt that we had the best. It's almost like we say, that God chose this team, you know, not just for America, but for every nation that came to those games. He picked the premier, the prime, the cream of the crop to have them come just based on how many records had been broken that year, that particular games. So we started our process. I say the process, process of elimination. Mm-hmm. We started going through the rounds. Uh, we had to run the quarter semi that day. And after the quarter semi was over, I had some things that was on my mind. Before the Olympics, there was a furor in this country over a threatened boycott by Negro athletes. Then most of them decided that participation in the Olympic would further the cause of civil rights in this country and abroad. I was disenchanted about the fact that the boycott was called off. We didn't have enough Mm -hmm. athletes that uh, felt that it was strong enough issues that we should really consider boycotting those Olympics. Uh, not so much to hurt America, to hurt the Olympic movement, but just more so to uh, have America feel like, where would America been if the black soldiers had stepped back in World War mm-hmm. One or World War Two or the Korean War? I don't think we've been as great a nation as we are today. And by stepping back to the Olympic Games, we no harm, no foul, we ain't shoot nobody, we ain't maim nobody, we ain't injure nobody or kill anyone. Just merely take a step back. Mm-hmm to make them realize what our worth was as black people in this world. That was on my mind heavy that day. And after the quarter semi, I went to Mr. Smith and I said to him, I said, Tommy, I'm disenchanted about the fact that the boycott was called off. Mm -hmm. And I want to make a statement. What's your take on that? And he said, man, I'm with you. When he said he was with me, I said, look, man, Mm -hmm. if it was one of us, they'd wrote us off like we crazy and just send it on down the river. Because I felt all along, if we made a statement, it couldn't be me. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be him. It had to be us.
1968 Olympics is one of the most important sporting events in American history, mainly because of the decision of two black Americans, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. 55 years ago, this coming Monday, they chose to accept their 200-meter track and field medals while holding their fists in the air to signify black power. The photo is iconic and legendary. It's an image I had in my dorm room, and it's in my bedroom today. As the son of a freedom rider, a literal descendant of civil rights activists, I know intimately the impact these moments can have on a person and those close to them decades later. So it was an absolute honor to sit face to face with John Carlos as he takes us inside the mind of a 23-year-old ready to change the world. I'm David Dennis Jr. It's Friday, October 13th. This is ESPN Daily. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Nineteen sixty-eight was such a pivotal year in American history. The Vietnam War raged abroad, and on April fourth of that year, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Good evening, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, thirty-nine years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States was assassinated in Memphis tonight. A sniper's bullet cut down Dr. King as he stood on a hotel balcony in Memphis. Several months later, presidential candidate Robert Kennedy was shot on June 5th while speaking in Los Angeles following his victory in the Democratic primary, ultimately succumbing to his wounds the next day. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's good. Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And that's where we find John Carlos, at 23 years old, preparing for the Olympics on the day that Kennedy was shot. I was going through misery uh-huh. at the time. Uh-huh. And I'm walking by down at the hotel saying to myself, man, where am I going with my life? Mm-hmm. You know, because life was, for me was like going down. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got home, the uh, news had come on and said that Robert Kennedy was shot. And it kind of shook me that this happened actually on my birthday. You know, we had the civil rights movement taking place in America at that particular time. Uh, I think black people at that particular time was waking up to reality in terms of who they are, what they were for in this life that we live, and whether we was being respected for who we were as human beings. And it came to the conclusion at that particular time, the youngsters said, no, man, we're not going to settle for what our our parents and our grandparents settled for. We want change, and we want change now. We don't want to hear the old slogan that they've heard for years, just give us time. Your day is coming. We've been hearing that for 100 years or more. And, I mean, at the time, there are so many, you know, black liberation movements going on at the time. There's an organization, there's SNCC, there's CORE, COFO, Black Panther Movement. What was the world like as you were preparing to go to the Olympics, and how did sort of these movements and the world in general impact you? Well, first of all, would you just, to add to what you said about 
in those various uh, organizations, they were local organizations. When I say local, meaning they were located in Chicago or New York or California, but they were local. They circumferenced their communities, their environment. Our statement was on a universal level. Mm-hmm. It was the first time they had televised the games worldwide. Mm-hmm. It was the first time the games was televised in Technicolor. So we had the spectacle, you might say, we was the first internet mm-hmm. where the world saw us at an instance. That was what was happening at home in America. And for John Carlos, three months after the death of Robert Kennedy, he would find some direction when he qualified for the 200 meters at the Olympic trials. But the idea to use the 68 Olympics as a platform for peaceful protests didn't come out of nowhere. Because before he arrived at the games in Mexico City, John Carlos attended a meeting that would spark the seed of activism within him. When I read in track and field news where they were talking about coming together, possibly doing a boycott. Mm. Man, I got excited about that. And I got a call at my mother's house. I always wonder how you got that number. Well, it was Professor Edwards' call. Now, is this Professor Harry Edwards? Yes, yes. Mm. And he said it was a meeting taking place at the old Americana Hotel in New York. Dr. Harry Edwards is a noted civil rights activist and the architect of the Olympic Project for Human Rights that you will hear more about in this episode. He said, the people asked him to invite me to the meeting. Do you have time? Uh, my mom said, well, if they invite you to the meeting, you need to be there. Uh-huh. And I remember going down to the Americana Hotel, and I went up to the door, and I knocked. And that opened the door, man. I, it blew me away. And I'm sitting there for a minute, and then it dawned on me that I'm sitting there with all these luminaries. Right, yeah. The same luminaries that my mother and father, my brothers, and I used to watch on TV. I'm in the room with them. Now I got a little unnerved then. Normally, I don't get nervous about nothing. I'm solid as a rock. But I felt like I was out of place then. And uh, about 20 minutes later, 25 minutes later, a side door opened, and Dr. King walks into the room. You're talking about somebody turning the petrified wood. Now, really, what am I doing here? Uh The essence of the meeting was uh, we wanted to get an understanding that Dr. King was going to come out and support the Olympic boycott. And that was the early stages of him coming out publicly to support us. Okay. What are the demands that you guys are laying out um, at the end of this meeting? What did y'all want to come out of this boycott? Well, if, if I remember correctly, we first of all, we wanted Avery Bronze to be replaced. Okay. Uh, we wanted <clears throat> South Africa out of the Olympic Games until they stopped the apartheid. Okay, and who was Avery, Avery Brundage? Avery Brundage was the International Olympic president. He's the guy that took Jim Thorpe's medal away from him. So we, we wanted, first of all, we wanted Avery Brundage removed, mm-hmm. okay? Second of all, we wanted Rhodesia. In South Africa, we wanted them out of the Games, mm-hmm. okay? Until they actually changed their attitude. We wanted Muhammad Ali's title restored back to him because remember they had stripped him of his title and then we was concerned about the war in Vietnam you know we need to pull back from that war in Vietnam and that was the crux of it with the plan in motion the next step was to head to Mexico City and so John Carlos Tommy Smith and the USA track and field team embarked for the Olympic Games and for history and so take me into the actual race here now you're in your stance starting pistol goes off what do you remember um, 
specifically about those 200 meters. Because also there's added importance here because now you have to, you know you're making this stand, but you got to medal first <laughs> before you make this stand. Well, that was that was the essence of it all. You know, no, no medal, mm-hmm. no no statement. Right. You know, so, I mean, we we had to get a medal. Uh, that's why if you see me in the race, that's why you see me looking around in the race to make sure that I was in the top three. Mm-hmm. As I stated, I wanted to take second, but I had forgotten about Peter Norman. When the race went off, man, I had in the front of my mind to come off that turn to let everyone know if John Collins wanted this race, he could have it. Peter Norman did get a good start, I thought. Smith is doing well. His leg seems to be standing up okay. Look at Carlos going in the center of the field and Quest that is not beaten by any means. Peter Norman running beautifully and he's got them there. But you can see me pull back on the rain and stop running and start striding. That's much stride down the track for 80 meters. I was disappointed because I had forgotten about Peter Norman, I turned around the race to tell Mr. Smith, stop, bull, and come on. And he shot up on me so fast. Remember, Mr. Smith was supposed to have had a groin muscle pull. And he shot up on me so fast. And I'm thinking about him while I'm striding down the track. And it didn't dawn on me until the last 10 meters, last 15 meters for, before the tape. Oh, shit. Peter Norman. <laughs> In the center of the field is Tommy Smith running through. President Peter Norman runs up late. Smith, full muscle and all, couldn't have pulled it that badly. He beat John Carlos. And Peter Norman could have run a second place. Whether second or third, it was a great performance. So when we went into the tape, I was disappointed until I looked up at the clock. When I looked at the clock and I saw that Peter had run 20 flat. I said, man, I ain't never seen a white kid running <laughs> 20 flat. He deserved everything he get. But then I looked up and saw that I had run 20 flat as well. So I was elated because it made me realize that I was on time for what I would have run if I had been run just outright running and not looking around or thinking about demonstration. So you're saying you pulled up to let Tommy Smith win the gold. And what was the um, reasoning behind that? Because the medal meant everything to him. It had no significant value to me other than it was my medal I wanted to give to my kids. But as far as the medal, no, Tommy always idolized medals and trophies. Uh, The mere fact that he said that he was going to make that statement with me, as I stated, that was the most important thing to me. Mm -hmm. The medal wasn't important. Why should I have the medal if it means nothing to me and deprive him of having it if it means everything to him? So talk uh, about—you talked a little about a a bit about coming up with this plan, talking to Tommy Smith about it. But ahead of the race, was sort of anybody aware of, of this plan at all? No one. No one, the only person became aware was Peter Norman when we was in the tunnel. Other than that, no one knew. Peter Norman, winner of the silver medal in that 200-meter final, a runner from Australia, and we should also note, a white man. So talk about that tunnel moment when, when y'all are having that discussion. Peter Norman was there, part of that? Yeah, well, we were in there and we was breaking down how we were going to come out and what we were going to put on, how we was going to put it on. Like I said, we was going to put the glove down in our pants so they couldn't see it. We were going out there barefoot, uh, you know, to illustrate poverty and so forth like that. And Peter saw us, and he said, what are you guys doing? And I said to him, I said, we're getting ready to make a statement. And I asked him, I said, Peter, let me ask you a question. He said, what's that? I said, do you believe in human rights? Mm-hmm. And he went away immediately to tell me that his mom and dad were Salvation Army workers mm-hmm. all of his life. He said, of course I believe in human rights. I said, would you like to wear an Olympic project for human rights button? Mm-hmm. And I had my button strapped on my jacket and I had when I was running all my races. Mm-hmm. And he reached for a button and I had to smack him <laughs> on his hand. I said, get down, man, I'll, I'll get you one. Uh-huh. You can't have this one. And it was a guy uh, from the Harvard Rowing team, mm. they were the rowers. Mm-hmm. 
I always say these guys was hippies at the time. Uh, they wasn't very much in support of us. Okay. And they had a button that I called to one of them, Paul, and one of them, I remember which one, and asked him to throw me down a button. And he's telling me, you got a button. And I said, yeah, it was for Peter. And they lit up like a Christmas tree. And they shot the button down, and I pinned the button on Peter before we went out. And that's how Peter happened to have the button, too. So what is Tommy Smith doing in the tunnel at this time while this is happening? Well, Tommy was in there. We was talking about how we was going to go out. But uh, between me and you, Tommy had a little stress on him. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and I guess he had stress in terms of how it would, he would be perceived, mm. uh, what might happen to us. Uh, so he was a little stressed. But I could understand him being stressed. I'm too crazy to be stressed. <laughs> well, I mean, it's important to note, you know, that you're just 23 years old at this point, right? And you're planning on using this race as a platform to send a message really to the whole world. You mentioned that Tommy Smith was a little nervous. Did you feel any nervousness at, at any point? None. None. Yeah, I tell people, man, I think I was born June 5th to be in Mexico, October 16th. You know, uh, no, if you looked at the, the pictures, you don't see no stress on me whatsoever. But you do see my eyes. You can see my eyes. And my eyes, you can see where I'm thinking very serious about something. What happens when you take the battle stand? We went out there. Everyone was excited. You could hear all the excitement running throughout the stadium. And then when we heard the NAFLAM and Tommy raised his hand and I started to raise my hand, it's almost like they said, we're not going to just gradually sing the national anthem. It's almost like they were screaming the national anthem and they're going to shove it down our throats. In other words, we're going to make you take this patriotic suit. Negro athletes wear buttons reading Olympic Project for Human Rights. There were some boos in the stadium last night. Uh, yeah, I remember Tommy saying it was like the longest two minutes of his life. Uh, I didn't even give no thought to how much time it took. You know, it's just that it was necessary, and I was focusing more on the response from the people. So there are, there are two details in the iconic photo that I think we should unpack. Um, obviously, the first is the black gloves wrapped around the clenched, defiant fist, lifted in the air, each of you guys wearing one. And obviously, you certainly didn't have them in the race yourself. Talk about the journey of the gloves from the beginning of the idea to the podium. Well, like I say, Tommy had the gloves. And every time we talking about what artifacts we had, we bring them. The essence of the glove, first of all, was to represent blackness and live, living color. But then the second thing was the essence of the glove. They never let us express what the essence of the glove was. Mm. We want to exemplify, yes, we represent America, mm. okay, as a whole. But on more specifically, we're representing black America. And the fist, the essence of the fist is this. Yeah, we got an open hand coming into any day or any race or any activity in life. We got an open hand. But this for this hand, man, is a tragic situation. It always felt like, you know, like I'm the stepson. You know, I'm not being treated as everyone else. And someone comes up with the theory, say, man, you know, if we can move that pebble to the other side of the road, we can make a significant difference for the better for society. And one out of the five jumped down, man, he tries and push that pebble across the road. He can't do it. The second one say, hey, man, I was checking you out. You didn't do it, man, because you didn't put your hips into it. Let me show you. He jumped down. He tried and move it. He can't do it. But by the time he's done, the five of them realize if we come together, then we become a very powerful entity. 
that's where the fist come from. That's where the power comes from. That's where unity comes from. And that was the essence of having a glove from my perspective. So you have also the badges, right? right. For the Olympic uh, Project for Human Rights, which you mentioned you give to uh, Peter Norman. Talk about the organization, its mission, and how important that Olympic Project for Human Rights was to you at the time. Well, the Olympic Project for Human Rights started out at San Jose State merely because black students was having a hard time, as I stated earlier, about you know how difficult it was to, to find living quarters. You know, we couldn't find housing around there. We would have to go find a, a befriend a white individual and ask him, say, man, would you go and try and get this apartment for us? I mean, this is the 60s. This ain't the 30s or the 20s. Right. We're talking about 1960, 65 and up. But we still had to go and find someone because we wasn't suitable. We wasn't the correct color to come and try and rent a piece of property. So that's what sparked the Olympic Project for Human Rights. But then when you start looking at that, then you realize that that was just a tip of the triangle. You realize that there's a broad base of atrocities that have happened to us from history to the current time. So we said, nah, we need to try and do something about this. We felt that at the same time that anyone that has the focus of the world on them in America would be the president of the United States. But then we began to think that we have as many spectators and people that admire us and listen to us as the president of the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. So we felt we had a very powerful voice as athletes. And now it's sort of the three of you in this in this moment, right? You, Smith, and Norman. Uh, talk about uh, was this a, the the relationship between you two, you three that formed out of this? Was this sort of just one moment in history, or did the three of you start um, a longer relationship? No, I think Peter Norman and I became brotherhood. Mm -hmm. You know, we had, we had genuine love and admiration, and respect for one another. Mm -hmm. uh, Tommy Smith. Tommy and I are just two symbols on the victory stand. Mm. I'm sorry that it's that way, but it's been that way. I've been trying to get Tommy to understand, man, whether you like me or not, man, we joined by the hits for eternity. Uh, but I could never get him to understand that. And after 40 some odd years, I just threw my hands up and say, God, it's in your hands. I'm going to leave it alone. Coming up, the fallout and the legacy of this iconic moment. The NFL schedule drops this week, kiddos, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. Taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. 
Well, the good news is not only are wonderful pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Dr. John Carlos, you've been taking us through the iconic moment, the 1968 Olympics, where you and Tommy Smith raised your fist in a silent tribute to human rights on the medal stand. And I want to go back to that moment here. You described the scene, the booze, the anthem, as if American patriotism was being forced upon you. What was that like? Well, the biggest thing I told Tommy on the way out, I said, man, if anyone is going to kill us, because they had put threats on us, uh-huh. if anyone is going to kill us, I felt that there was going to be a void mm-hmm. from the time that they were yippee-ki-yin to the time they registered in their minds what we were doing by putting our fists up. That void would come, and the void would be this silence. So if anybody cocked a gun or a rifle, we trained to listen to the gun. So I said, man, if you hear that, hit the deck. Mm-hmm. You know, when the people started booing, like I said, I had expectations of that because I saw it before time. And then when we got down from the stands, we find that it was a split feeling because we had a lot of Hispanics there in the stands and they understood because they was downtrodden too. You know, a lot of them that was working around the stadium or was in the stadium, they weren't no wealthy people. They knew what poverty and, and homelessness was. I was on the victory stand actually thinking about this. When we went to the airport, when we landed in there, and I remember they had a mesh wire fence. And I looked, I said, man, that's deep. And they had all the Olympic posters on the fence. And when I went and I looked, and behind the fence was an alley. And I saw a woman in the alley <clears throat> with her two kids. Mm. And the kids is playing in dirty water, drinking the water. And it really made me think about people that was really hurting. And who the hell is out there to help them? Who's out there bringing attention to them? So it kind of like fortified me that much more that what was necessary to do had to be done. And so later, so after you leave the medal stand, uh, how were you and Tommy Smith received within the Olympic community? A lot of people were very happy a lot of the black athletes were very happy about what we did. At the same time, I remember a lot of them was concerned because now they was talking about they was going to kick the whole U.S. team out. Right. Huh? If they didn't kick us off the Olympic team and kick us out of the village, they was going to stop the rest of the guys from competing. Now, here I'd like to make this point also. To all the trials and tribulations of that particular statement and that anguish about that statement, they wasn't angry enough that they would take our medals down when they did the medal count. They kept our medals up because, <laughs> remember, we got to beat Russia. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We got to beat Cuba. You know, we got to beat the Eastern Bloc countries. So no matter what I did, it's okay because we're going to keep that bronze medal. We need that count. It's right. okay what <laughs> Mrs. Uh-huh. Smith did. We need that medal. So what was the reception like when you got back home? What were you hearing about yourselves in the media in the United States? Well, in my environment, man, people loved it because— uh, they felt that we represented them, mm-hmm. represented them real well, represented the pain that they had for a long time. You know, you just like, you know, you can push but so much into a can after mm-hmm. a while the can will explode because mm-hmm. there's no more room for nothing else to go in there. And that's the way I, a lot of them was feeling at that particular time. Remember the civil rights movement was going on. There was a lot of assassinations going on. And then here we come to raise people up by that statement of raise people up. But yet and still— when it raised people up and gave them some sort of solace, it brought out anger and hatred in others. Mm. 
because I, I remember I got a, a letter, a guy sent me a letter, and I, man, this guy sent me a letter, and he, he said in the letter, he said, listen, he said, nigga, let me tell you something. He said, I got something for your ass. And he says, I'm gonna kidnap your father. Mm. He said, I'm gonna rip your father. He said, I'm gonna cut him up in little pieces, and I'm gonna send him back to you in the mail. Man, you know, I'm emotional about it now, but when I read this back then, I was hurt, I was mad, not so much about what he said, but I was more mad because he wasn't even man enough for the return address mm -hmm. so I could let him know what I thought mm -hmm. about him. One of the things that, you know, from talking to people like my dad and the, and the civil rights folks from that time is that when you deal with this just constant barrage of the death threats and stuff, that stuff lingers with you. How have you sort of coped and dealt with the PTSD and the trauma of having to deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis, especially at, at being so young? Well, man, let me tell you this. I've learned from the time I was knee-high to a grasshopper mm -hmm. that whatever hand I'm dealt in life, man, I just got to play my hand. You know, someone come and, and try and do something with me, I'm going to try and use my mind. But in terms of physical, mm -hmm. I ain't worried about nobody coming on me physical. What do you think the legacy you hope you've left behind from that moment is? Still to be determined, brother. Still to be determined. I made my mark, okay? Uh, in terms of what I think doesn't matter. It's what you think. Mm. And those out there that was able to receive it, what they think, you understand? I did what I felt was necessary to do, to give everybody an equal opportunity to stand up and say, hey, man, I am somebody. I didn't go there with guns on to try and blaze nobody down. I went there proud to represent America. All I said for many years, it's difficult for you to represent America and look up every morning and America is not representing you. Mm -hmm. That's a hard pill to swallow. Some people close their eyes to it, but I can never close my eyes to it because I have my, my kids, my offspring. I have to make sure that in their life, there is some degree of growth for the better. Dr. John Carlos, Olympic medalist, activist, world changer. Thank you so much for sharing your story on ESPN Daily. Well, I'm honored to be here, man. I'm David Dennis Jr. This has been ESPN Daily. Our show is produced by Bruce Baldwin, Bradford Craig, Andrew Hahn, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Ryan Nantel, Mike Philbert, Andres Soto, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Andy Tennant, Bill Roden, Justin Tinsley, and Jackson Agello. Before we go, I want to throw it over to producer Alexander Hyacinth with one more special note. If you listen to the ESPN Daily Podcast every week, you're familiar with us acknowledging the men and women that work so hard to bring you these stories each day. The staff at ESPN Daily wants to take a moment to recognize two of them. To our boss, Andy Tennant, Thank you so much for your guidance, for your leadership, and for putting this team together in the first place. It's been great to have you leading our ship. To our managing producer, MJ, thank you so much for your leadership and dedication to your craft and to this program. We've been blessed to have you on board and wouldn't be where we are today without you. That's it for us today. We'll talk to you Monday.